thank you, um, and thank you to Dr. O'Donnell for the invitation, both uh, for tonight's lecture and to be uh, teaching this spring. I'm looking forward to that course. Um, I should mention that this lecture and this book has deep ties to the Christendom College community. Uh, one of the chapters in the book originally appeared as a heritage backgrounder that was co-authored with a Christendom grad from class of 2015, Melody Wood. Um, most of the book was um, the drafting and the editing was provided with the research assistant from uh, Laura Cermak, who was our excellent intern about a year or so ago at Heritage. And then since the publication of the book, all of the um, distribution, promotion, speaking, and uh, subsidiary projects have been uh, facilitated by Monica Burke, a graduate from just a year and a half ago, uh, who is our current research assistant. So there, there are deep connections uh, with what I'll say tonight and with uh, this campus. This is my third time on campus. Uh, I was here maybe four years ago. Uh, Melody had invited me out, and I spoke about marriage, how to properly understand um, what is marriage. And it was based on that book. And then two years ago, I was here. It was on the uh, Feast of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and I spoke about the aftermath of the redefinition of marriage, and particularly focusing on the religious liberty aspect. Uh, and to a certain extent, tonight's lecture flows right from uh, those two earlier lectures, that what we've seen in the past several years is a pivot from the LGB part of the acronym to the T part of the acronym. Um, and that's not to say that there haven't always been people who experienced gender dysphoria. Um, all throughout human history, there have been people who have felt a sense of alienation from their body. Um, what makes this moment unique is a combination of modern technology, a combination of uh, modern uh, political power, and then a combination of, that's my baby, so it's okay, and then a combination of um, modern ideology. And when you combine those three things, new technological and medicinal possibilities, a new ideology on how we think about the human person and human sexuality, and then an arising political uh, movement, that sets the conditions um, for a radically different response to gender dysphoria. It was about 50 years ago that Johns Hopkins University and Johns Hopkins Hospital, they opened one of the first sex reassignment clinics in the United States. And then it was about 40 years ago that that clinic was shut down. Um, Dr. Paul McHugh arrived at Johns Hopkins. He had been an undergraduate at Harvard College. He was then uh, educated at Harvard Medical School where he received his training in psychiatry. He then is hired by Hopkins and then eventually he's promoted to be psychiatrist in chief at the hospital and chair of the psychiatry department at the medical school. And McHugh said to his colleagues, we've been uh, trying to attempt to reassign the sex to our patients for about a decade now. We should conduct a study to see what the outcomes have been. And so the results of that study were that the patients were generally happy as a cosmetic matter with how the surgeries had gone, but they didn't show any sustained improvement in their underlying psychosomatic conditions. Um, all of the same struggles that brought them the Hopkins in the first place persisted. Uh, and so it was with that study that McHugh was able to convince his bosses at Hopkins to shut down the sex reassignment clinic. That was back in 1970s. And it remained shut down until two years ago, uh, where it was reopened not in light of new evidence, uh, human nature hasn't changed in the intervening 40 years, but in light of a new ideology and in light of new political power. What has changed from when Dr. McHugh was originally uh, wrestling with this question to today is that it's no longer just adults uh, who are the protagonists in our transgender moment. Uh, increasingly, it's children. It was a decade ago, 2007, that Boston Children's Hospital became, quote, the first major, ma major program in the United States to focus on transgender children and adolescents, end quote. That's a quote from its website. They brag about this. Today, uh, just a decade later, there are over 40 pediatric gender clinics uh, where parents are told that puberty-blocking drugs and cross-sex hormones are the only way to prevent their child from committing suicide. Never mind that the best studies on gender dysphoria in children show that somewhere between 80 to 95% of an adolescent with a gender identity conflict will naturally grow out of it if their development is not interfered with. Never mind that 41% of people who identify as transgender attempt suicide at some point in their lives. And never mind that people who have undergone uh, sex reassignment uh, surgery are 19 times more likely to die by suicide. 
those statistics are tragic and they should really stop us in our tracks before we rush uh, to embrace the most recent ideology on sex and gender and gender identity. Um, they should really uh, caution us to kind of hit the pause button, the tap the brakes, to slow down and reconsider uh, what we're doing, especially to young people. And so tonight I wanna share with you some of, the, um, uh, some of the main arguments of the book, some of the main arguments that I think will help you as you think through um, this issue for yourselves. Um, but I also wanna immediately draw a distinction between people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, uh, people who identify in some cases as transgender, and the ideologues who embrace and promote uh, what I'll refer to as a transgender ideology. Uh, and that's a critical distinction to make because frequently the people experiencing gender dysphoria, the people who identify as transgender, they're simply trying to make the best of a really bad situation. Imagine feeling so alienated from your own body so much distress in your own flesh that you would contemplate taking the opposite sex's sex hormones or that you would contemplate removing some of your body parts and asking for plastic surgery to create something that resembles the opposite sexes. These people are suffering. Uh, they're not faking. They're not pretending. Um, and they're being fed bad advice by the professionals in their lives, whether they're mental health professionals, whether they're medical professionals, whether they're guidance counselors. And that's why the critique here is at those ideologues. It's not at the individuals um, who are suffering in this way. If anything, we should have uh, abundant compassion and charity and patience uh, with people who feel uh, this form of alienation from their own bodies. But we also need to insist in, uh, on telling the truth when it comes to those who are promoting uh, a faulty anthropology. Uh, and if I remember correctly, where I closed the lecture from two years ago was by citing John Paul II saying the crisis of the 20th century was a crisis of faulty anthropology. And at the time, I wasn't even thinking about researching or writing this book. Uh, I was just applying that to the same-sex marriage debate. John Paul was uh, thinking of it in the context of communism, socialism, the two world wars, and then uh, the abortion regime. Uh, but you can extend that through with the redefinition of marriage and now with the redefinition of sex and gender. So let me start with what I um, refer to as transgender ontology. Um, at normal audiences, I'd have to explain what ontology is, but here at Christendom, I can assume that you already know what the word ontology means. But it's more or less how we think about being. Um, people claim we live in a postmodern age that has rejected metaphysics. I don't think that's true. I think we live in a postmodern age that promotes an alternative metaphysic. Now, they're making metaphysical claims and the claim here is that someone is who they identify as. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, they would say that uh, someone who is transgender is a man who identifies as a woman. Today, the new claim is that that individual is a woman. Because a claim about who someone is is much more powerful in the public square than a claim about how someone identifies. And so what they're making is a fundamentally metaphysical, anthropological claim, but they're dressing it up as a scientific or medicinal claim. Because in all, our culture, the high priests aren't the philosophers and the theologians. In our culture, the high priests are the doctors and the scientists. So they want to trade on the cachet of the prestige of the doctors and the scientists to make what are fundamentally claims about human nature, about anthropology, about metaphysics. Let me give you an example of this. From a medical perspective, the appropriate determinant of sex is gender identity. It is counter to medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, or secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity for purposes of classifying someone as male or female. This was a argument made by Dr. Deanna Adkins in a federal court of law in North Carolina during the lawsuit surrounding North Carolina's HB2. Dr. Adkins is the uh, uh, director of uh, the, cent the Duke Center for Child and Adolescent Gender Care, which opened three years ago, uh, which gives you an idea of how new all of this is. This claim is radical for several reasons. I'll just focus on two. Uh, first is that when the original gender theorists used the word gender in distinction to the word sex, 
they were saying that sex was the biological reality and then gender was a social construct and that gender was merely a social construct and they were trying to distinguish sex from gender. Today, she's arguing in federal court that your gender identity determines your sex. Just a few years ago, the bread and butter of medical science were things like chromosomes and hormones and internal organs and external genitalia and secondary sex characteristics. Today, Dr. Adkins is telling federal courts that it's counter to medical science to point to any aspect of objective reality if it conflicts with someone's subjective identity. And so the claims of identity become uh, paramount over aspects of reality. This isn't just taking place in courtrooms. This is increasingly taking place in classrooms. So the gender-bred person, uh, which you can see here, <laughs> is being used um, not perhaps at the grade schools that you attended, but at the public schools in your home districts. This is being used not just in the United States. This is being used across the world. I've, I've spoken in Europe, in South America, and in Australia, and after each lecture, I've had people say, this has been used in my classroom, my child's classroom, as will the next slide. And what this suggests is it suggests to a child, it indoctrinates a child, it catechizes a child to believe that their identity exists along five different spectra. Uh, gender identity, which you see uh, in the multicolored brain of this individual, gender expression, the next box down, biological sex, and then sexual attracted to and romantically attracted to. And it says that all of these things ex exist along spectrums. You'll see even biological sex has arrows to suggest that you could be more or less. And that there are infinite possibilities uh, when it comes to gender identity. Uh, the fine print of gender identity uh, in, in the little blue writing at the top box says, how you in your head define your gender based on how much you align or don't align with what you understand to be the options for gender. And then the graphic lists, quote, four of infinite possibilities, womanness, manness, two-spirit, and genderqueer. The gender-bred person got in trouble, um, so it's been replaced by a new graphic, even though you'll notice this is version 3.3. You see gender-bred person V3.3. This is the most up-to-date um, operating system for the gender-bred person. Still got in trouble for two reasons. Uh, first, they claimed that the gender-bred person was supporting the patriarchy, um, that it looks too much like a man. It looks like a gingerbread man. And then the second reason was they said that it uses a politically incorrect term. Uh, in the middle of the graphic, you'll see it says biological sex. So the new graphic is the gender unicorn. You'll see that it no longer resembles either a male or a female. In fact, unicorns are mythical creatures, so it's oddly appropriate that they chose a unicorn. <laughs> You'll also see that it now says sex assigned at birth. Why are they using that uh, ideologically charged phrase? Because if you can convince a child that their sex was merely assigned at birth, you make it more likely that sex could be reassigned later in life. Now, when you all saw this graphic, having the benefit of the formation you received at home, the formation you're receiving at Christendom, you laughed at it. When kindergarten students and grade school students see this graphic, it captures their moral imagination. This isn't meant for you. This is meant for your younger siblings. This is meant for your future children. This is meant to look like Barney. It's bright, it's colorful, it's attractive. And it's meant to catechize a young person into how they should think about their own body and their own identity. Gender identity, gender expression, a sex that was merely assigned at birth, physically attracted to and emotionally attracted to. And all of those things um, can line up or not. Right? There's no necessary truth built into nature. There's no creational norms. There's no meaning built into the body. Um, all of this is fluid and plastic, and you as the student need to decide for yourself what your gender identity, your gender expression, your physical attractions, your emotional attractions are. Why does this matter? Um, imagine two young people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, two young people who are going through a stage where they don't feel comfortable in their own body, one of whom believes that he is created male by a loving, all-powerful God, the other of whom believes he was assigned male at birth, 
and that his gender identity determines his real sex and that his sex could be reassigned later in life. Same two individuals with the same exact set of experiences and feelings would interpret those experiences and feelings in radically different ways based upon what their underlying convictions are. So too the underlying convictions of their parents and their counselors and their physicians, and their guidance counselors go through the list. All of us try to make sense of our lives. We try to make sense of our thoughts and our feelings and our experiences. We do this whether we're young children or whether we're middle-aged adults, right? We're constantly trying to make a coherent narrative sense of our lives. And we interpret our thoughts and our feelings and our experiences in light of certain core convictions, certain core beliefs, certain scripts. And so the gender unicorn is replacing um, the creation narrative in Genesis. Right? It's creation, uh, uh, replacing a certain understanding of being created male or female. The people who created this uh, image explain why. Biological sex, they claim, is an ambiguous word that has no scale and no meaning besides that it is related to some sex characteristics. It's also harmful to trans people. Instead, we prefer sex assigned at birth, which provides a more accurate description of what biological sex may be trying to communicate. So from this anthropology, this ontology, this gives rise to a certain approach to medicine. Uh, no longer is it what Dr. McHugh uh, was doing at Johns Hopkins. Instead, I want to briefly outline a four-part standard of care um, that's being used in those 40 pediatric gender clinics that I mentioned. Uh, the first step is what's known as social transition. A child as young as three years old, if he or she is persistent, insistent, and consistent that they're the opposite sex, they should be allowed to socially transition. They should be given a new name, a new pronoun, a new wardrobe, access to new bathrooms and locker rooms and sports teams. They should live as if the opposite sex. Second, as that child approaches puberty, they should be prevented from going through puberty in the quote, wrong body. So they're using puberty blocking drugs to indefinitely delay a child from maturing in their biological sex, from a boy from becoming a man, a girl from becoming a woman. This then sets up the third um, step of the, step of the uh, treatment protocol, which is now you have a teenager trapped in a young person's body. So the third step is you try to initiate, imitate the opposite sex's puberty uh, by administering testosterone to teenage girls and estrogen to teenage boys. Uh, the official recommendations are to commence uh, the cross-sex hormone therapy at age 16. Increasingly, doctors are recommending that it be done at age 14. This then leads to the fourth step, which is surgical transition. Not every individual will go through all four steps. Many people don't opt for the surgery. Uh, but according to the official guidelines at age 18, uh, you could have sex reassignment surgery to remove those internal organs, those external genitalia, those secondary sex characteristics, and then to surgically create something that resembles, at least in, in appearance, if not in uh, full functionality, uh, sex organs of the opposite sex. While the official guidelines recommend age 18, this is also increasingly happening at younger ages. Two months ago, there was a academic study published on the benefits of reassignment surgery. Uh, that, that's what they were trying to prove. If you read through the raw data, it revealed that there were two 12-year-old girls who had had double mastectomies performed on them as part of their participation in this study. Uh, so increasingly young, I mean, not even teenagers at this point, 12 years old, uh, having physical changes done to the body. Why are they doing this? Dr. Scott Leibowitz explains, peer-reviewed research demonstrates that pre-pubertal children asserting a different gender identity from the one they were assigned at birth are cognitively capable enough to be aware of the gender they are asserting. The meaning of a child's gender identity assertion at a younger age is no less valid than the meaning of a gender identity assertion of an older child. From this vision of medicine, then gives rise to the demands when it comes to public policy. Um, so let me just briefly outline four aspects of the public policy debate. I'm gonna scroll through my outline. First, um, what will be taught in schools? 
Uh, particularly, what will be taught in the government-run schools that we refer to as public schools? Will the gender-bred person, will the gender unicorn be taught as true to young, impressionable students? Um, how will we understand the, the reality, the truth about sex and gender and gender identity? Um, and will indoctrination be part of a school's biology class, an anti-bullying program, et cetera, et cetera? Second, how will uh, public places, schools, uh, government facilities, um, uh, theaters, restaurants, things like this, how will they govern access to sex-specific facilities? Will they be based on biology, separate facilities for male and female, or will they be based on gender identity, separate facilities for people who identify as men and people who identify as women? Uh, third, how will we govern um, speech? Will you be forced to speak someone else's beliefs? Um, this is what originally got Jordan Peterson his international acclaim. Uh, two years ago, the University of Toronto announced that they were going to have a preferred pronoun policy where you would have to refer to students by their preferred pronouns, including made-up pronouns like Z, Zer, and Zer. And Peterson said, no, I'm going to be respectful of my students, but I'm not going to talk nonsense. Um, in New York City, you can be fined a quarter million dollars for intentionally misgendering someone, uh, intentionally refusing to use their preferred pronouns. And then fourth, there's a question of, and this is not an exhaustive list. I'm just going through four highlights. We could talk more about the policy. But the fourth is, how will medical procedures be governed? Um, will bad medicine be mandated? And will good medicine be prohibited? And let me unpack that. In the last several months of the Obama administration, in May of 2016, uh, they issued a new Obamacare mandate. Uh, this was an interpretation of Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. And what that said in the original uh, congressional statute was no discrimination on the basis of sex. It meant that you had to treat your male and female patients equally. And if you were the employer in providing, providing health care benefits, you had to provide equal health care benefits to your male and female employers, employees. They reinterpreted the word sex to mean gender identity, and then they issued a regulation saying all health care plans had to cover sex reassignment procedures, and all relevant physicians had to perform them. Otherwise, they would be discriminating on the basis of sex understood as gender identity. Uh, so what this meant, this was like the HHS contraception mandate on steroids on testosterone and estrogen, but also on surgery. So every healthcare plan would have to pay for these procedures, but then also all relevant physicians would have to perform them. If you are the surgeon who performs double mastectomies in the case of breast cancer, you'd have to perform double mastectomies in the case of sex reassignment. If you're the endocrinologist who performs testosterone therapy for men with low testosterone, you'd have to perform testosterone therapy for women who want to identify as men. This regulation had no religious liberty exemptions. It had no protections for conscience. It also had no considerations at all for best medical judgment. Many physicians, regardless of their religious beliefs or their moral beliefs, simply think it's bad medicine to remove the healthy breast tissue from the healthy body of a teenage girl. And this regulation had no consideration at all for the physician's medical judgment. It also had no age cutoffs. Um, some physician thinks it's okay for Bruce to become Caitlin, but they don't want teenage children making these life-altering medical decisions. And they don't want to be co-opted by the government into performing them. This regulation had no distinction, no uh, cutoff for the age of the patient. So that's the mandating bad medicine. Um, now it's up to 12 states uh, have prohibited good medicine. There are now 12 states that prohibit what they call conversion therapy. And they define conversion therapy as talking to an adolescent uh, about why they feel uncomfortable in their own body with the hope of helping them feel comfortable in their own body. That is defined in 12 states as conversion, and that is banned in those 12 states. Whereas in all 50 states, if you help that young person identify as the opposite sex, if you prescribe them puberty-blocking drugs, if you administer them cross-sex hormones, even if you perform surgery on them, removing healthy breast tissue, for example, in all 50 states, that's entirely legal. 
And yet in 12, if you take a boy who doesn't feel comfortable being a boy and you help him identify as a boy, feel comfortable in his own body, you could lose your medical license in 12 states. I'm going to skip the next slide just in the interest of time. I'm going to skip this slide for time as well. And let me read you this slide. This is from the Director of Mental Health at the Gender Center at Benioff Children's Hospital at the University of California, San Francisco. She's describing um, uh, transgender and other gender fluid children. She says, quote, they refuse to pin themselves down as either male or female. Maybe they are a boy girl or gender hybrid or gender ambidextrous, moving freely between genders, living somewhere in between or creating their own mosaic of gender identity and expression. As they grow older, they might identify themselves as agender or gender neutral or gender queer. Each one of these children is exercising their gender creativity and we can think of them as our gender creative children. What's remarkable about this quote is in the very same breath as Dr. Aronsoff says that as they grow older, their gender identity might change. She also wants to prescribe radical uh, therapeutic interventions on their body today that will make permanent changes. So as she acknowledges, as they grow older, they might identify themselves as something else. She's willing today to make radical changes on their bodies. And then when it comes to schools, ultimately the school environment must be set up so that transgender girls are treated like all other girls and transgender boys like all other boys. Ask yourself, what is a transgender girl? It's a boy who identifies as a girl. Right? They're no longer using that language of identify as. The transgender girl is a girl and therefore should be treated like all other girls. So this means when it comes to the bathroom, the locker room, hotel rooms, dorm rooms, sports teams, the boy who identifies as a girl must be given the same access on the same terms as all the actual girls. And then what I think is particularly concerning, especially um, as a new uh, father, is what happens to parental authority. Privacy and confidentiality are critically important for transgender students who do not have supportive families. In those situations, even inadvertent disclosures could put the student in a potentially dangerous situation at home. So it's important to have a plan in place to avoid any mistakes or slip-ups. What they're talking about here is how you as a principal or an administrator of a school could set up the school environment so that a child could transition at school without his or her parents knowing about it. Um, so that a, a parent could drop off their son at 8 a.m. in the morning um, dressed as a boy, identifying as a boy as far as the parents know, that child could go to the principal's office uh, where he would have a different wardrobe awaiting him, possibly makeup, lipstick, nail polish, spend the day dressed as a girl, presenting as a girl, being referred to with a female name, female pronouns, and then at the end of the day, going back to the principal's office, changing out of the clothes, going home without you as the parent knowing about this. This is the privacy and confidentiality of the student with no notification to the parent and no notification to the other students. Right? It's an entirely a one-way uh, street. You'll notice that this uh, handbook, Schools in Transition, it's jointly produced by the ACLU, the Human Rights Campaign, Gender Spectrum, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and the National Education Association. The, NAE, uh, the NEA is the largest teachers union in the United States. So the teachers union has partnered with a left-wing law firm and three LGBT rights groups to promote the official handbook on how schools uh, should govern themselves with respect to students with gender dysphoria. Okay, so let me now say a little bit about this. How should we uh, make sense of this? How should we evaluate it, interpret it? And I wanna go through this in a couple of steps. Um, some of the philosophy going on here, some of the science going on here, some of the medicine going on here, and then close with um, a couple practical considerations. So first, for the philosophy, um, there's a section of the book that I subtitled The Philosophical Contradictions of the Transgender Worldview. Uh, it's, it's a play on a title by Daniel Bell of the cultural contradictions of ca capitalism, where he uh, uh, critiques a certain form of capitalism and the cultural contradictions it has. They're philosophical contradictions going on in the uh, transgender worldview. Uh, and let me highlight a couple of those for you. Um, 
the transgender worldview, it combines a new form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism, in which the we real self is something other than a material body, so that's the one view, while simultaneously uh, embracing materialism, in which only material bodies exist. And you can't embrace both of those views simultaneously. That's a contradiction. It insists, as one of the slides that I skipped, that gender exists primarily between our ears and our brains and minds, and not necessarily by what is between our legs. That's a direct quote. It insists on that while also promoting radical therapies to transform what's between people's legs. It relies on rigid sex stereotypes in which boys are supposed to play with trucks and girls are supposed to play with dolls, while also insisting that gender is merely a social construct, and so there are no meaningful differences between boys and girls, all the while insisting that gender identity is real and meaningful, but the facts of human embodiment are not. It embraces radical expressive individualism uh, in which people should be free to define the truth how they wish it were, and they should be free to live their lives how they wish, while simultaneously enforcing a ruthless paternalism in which anyone who dissents should be coerced and punished. So let me ask you some questions to get you thinking about this. If gender is a social construct, how can gender identity be innate and immutable? That is, how can your identity with respect to a social construct be determined by biology while you're in the womb? But what does it even mean to have an internal sense of gender? So gender identity is defined as one's internal sense of gender. What does gender feel like? What does it feel like to feel like a woman? Are all of the women in this room right now feeling the same way? Is that what makes you instances of the class woman? Is that you have common feelings? Have you all talked to each other to see if you're feeling the same way? Is there an internal sense that makes you a woman? How would I know if I felt like a woman? Right, so there's both an ontological and an epistemological problem here. The ontological, what is it? Is there a there there of feeling like a woman? Is that what sex and gender refer to, an internal feeling? And then an epistemological problem, how would I know if I was feeling like a woman? Uh, this goes back to Thomas Nagel's essay on what it's like to be a bat, that we don't have this incarnational first-person knowledge of what it's like to be a bat. I don't have that knowledge of what it's like to feel like a woman. Why should feeling like a woman, so we're shifting back to ontology now, why should feeling like a woman, whatever that means, make someone a woman? So even if we could answer the question of what it is to feel like a woman, why should feeling like X make you X? Um, we don't say our feelings determine our identity on a host of other issues. Um, there's a 60-something-year-old man suing right now to identify as a 40-something-year-old man, and no one thinks he actually is 40-year-olds. Our feelings don't determine our age. Otherwise, I would be retired by now. Likewise, no one ran along with Rachel Dolezal, the white woman who identified as black and who was running her local NAACP chapter. So our feelings don't determine our race. Why do our feelings determine our sex? To a certain extent, I think that gender identity can sound similar to religious identity on a certain modern understanding of religion. And what I mean by this is that this is where your identity is determined by your beliefs. But just like religion, those beliefs don't determine reality. So consider, a Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. A Muslim is someone who believes that Muhammad is the prophet. Jesus either is or is not the Christ, regardless of what any of us believe. In the same way, I either am or am not a man, regardless of what any of us, including me, believes. So just like religious life, where we try to conform our thoughts and our feelings and our beliefs to reality, so too with our sexual and gender identity life. We try to conform our thoughts and our feelings to the reality of our own body. Our gender identity, our uh, sexual identity is meant to reflect underlying truths. It's not that the truth is determined by our feelings. Right? They, they've turned this, they've inverted this 
upside down. So if that's some of the um, underlying um, philosophical contradictions, it's not surprising to see that there's also some underlying physical contradictions. Contrary to what the activists claim, sex isn't assigned at birth, and that's why it can't be reassigned later in life. Sex is a bodily reality, uh, and it's recognized long before birth. An ultrasound technician offered to tell us whether our unborn child was a boy or a girl at 20 weeks post-conception. And the sex of our child wasn't assigned at ultrasound. <laughs> what the technician was doing was the technician was recognizing a certain inbuilt reality. Uh, even on a grainy ultrasound screen 20 weeks prior to birth, the ultrasound technician can identify, they can discern, they can recognize a truth about that person. Uh, this is a truth that begins to take uh, shape at conception with the chromosomes that we inherit from our mother and father. Uh, those chromosomes then lead to the development of certain internal reproductive organs, which then produce certain uh, uh, hormones, which then lead to the development of certain external genitalia, which will then in turn lead to the development of certain secondary sex characteristics. If you're still awake, you will notice that that's the litany that Dr. Adkins claimed was counter to medical science. Right? Those are the five aspects, those chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, secondary sex characteristics that she claimed is now counter to medical science. That's how we actually identify the male and the female, not just of the human species, but across the animal kingdom. How is an organism organized with respect to sexual reproduction? And there are two ways of being organized with respect to sexual reproduction. There's a male and a female way. There are two sexual reproductive systems, a male and a female system. There are two sets of sex cells, um, sperm and egg. There are two sets of sex uh, genitalia. This is why there's a stable sex binary. This isn't a social construct. This isn't something that's merely uh, um, created by culture. This is something that's built into the nature of reality, built into creation. And none of that can actually be reassigned later in life. What you can do is you can amputate certain body parts and then you can try to masculinize or feminize uh, the outward appearance of an individual. You can't actually reorganize the body with respect to reproduction. So Dr. Larry Mayer at Johns Hopkins and at Arizona State, scientifically speaking, transgender men are not biological men and transgender women are not biological women. The claims to the contrary are not supported by a scintilla of scientific evidence. And Robbie George at Princeton, changing sexes is a metaphysical impossibility because it is a biological impossibility. Just as sex reassignment fails as a physical matter, um, the best uh, medical studies we have so far suggest that it also fails as a psychosocial matter that it doesn't bring the wholeness and the happiness that patients are desiring. Um, the best medical evidence we have suggests that even in cultures that are generally transgender friendly, and even where the procedures go well as a cosmetic matter, uh, people who undergo sex reassignment surgery still face a host of heightened risks in terms of underlying depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, suicide attempts, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, et cetera. So Dr. McHugh uh, wrote an essay for public discourse after um, Bruce Jenner came out as uh, identifying as transgender. He writes, transgender men do not become women, nor do transgender women become men. All become feminized men or masculinized women, counterfeits and impersonators of the sex with which they identify. In that lies their problematic future. When the tumult and shouting dies, it proves not easy nor wise to live in a counterfeit sexual garb. The most thorough follow-up of sex reassigned people, extending over 30 years and conducted in Sweden, where the culture is strongly supportive of the transgender, documents their lifelong mental unrest. 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of comparable peers. So what McHugh is pointing at is um, you have an underlying problem. Uh, imagine you, that you feel 
so much discomfort in your own body that you would contemplate reassignment surgery. And the surgery doesn't actually address that underlying problem because the underlying problem wasn't with your body to begin with. That's part of it. And then the second part is that he says, it proves not easy nor wise to live in a counterfeit sexual garb. Uh, that trying to live for the long haul, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, as if the opposite sex uh, proves increasingly difficult for these people. Don't just take Dr. McHugh's word for this. Let me run through a couple other slides just to give you some other sources. All of these quotes are in the book, so if you're looking um, for references, you can find everything there. This is the Guardian um, newspaper. It's a United Kingdom paper. This is back in 2004, so 14 years old now. Guardian, this is them speaking of themselves in the third person. Guardian Weekend asked Birmingham University's aggressive research intelligence facility, ARIF, to assess the findings of more than 100 follow-up studies on post-op transsexuals. ARIF, which conducts reviews of healthcare treatments for the NHS, concludes that none of the studies provides conclusive evidence that gender reassignment is beneficial for patients. It found that most research was poorly designed, which skewed the results in favor of physically changing sex. There was no evaluation of whether other treatments, such as long-term counseling, might help, or whether their gender confusion might lessen over time. So 14 years ago, when it was still politically acceptable for a major paper to report honestly on these studies, they point out there is no firm evidence that reassignment benefits patients. And the studies that claim to benefit patients tend to be the most poorly designed studies with no follow-up and with no control and with no alternative therapies being tested as controls. This is then repeated 10 years later, so four years ago, uh, by Hazen Corporation. They're a consulting firm that hospitals and healthcare plans use to determine what they should be covering on their healthcare plan, what they should be performing at their hospitals. Hayes points out just four years ago, statistically significant improvements have not been consistently demonstrated by multiple studies for most outcomes. Evidence regarding quality of life and function in male to female adults was very sparse. Evidence for less comprehensive me measures um, directly applicable to gender dysphoria patients was sparse and or conflicting. The study designs do not permit conclusions of causalities, and studies generally had weaknesses associated with execution as well. There were potentially long-term safety risks, but none have been proven or ruled out. So what Hayes is admitting just four years ago is that this is all entirely experimental. We really have no idea what the safety risks are, whether or not this is benefiting patients. This is at the exploratory stage of science. Keep that in mind the next time you see the New York Times headline saying that the science is settled and that you're on the wrong side of history if you disagree. If you don't believe Dr. McHugh, if you don't believe The Guardian and Birmingham University, if you don't believe Hayes, would you believe the Obama administration? And that's not a trick question. Normally you shouldn't, but on this issue, you can. So June 2016, just two years ago, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, based on a thorough review of the clinical evidence available at this time, there is not enough evidence to determine whether gender reassignment surgery improves health outcomes for Medicare beneficiaries with gender dysphoria. There were conflicting, inconsistent study results. Of the best designed studies, some reported benefits while others reported harms. The quality and strength of evidence were low, due to the mostly observational study designs with no comparison groups, potential confounding of causes, and small sample sizes. Many studies that reported positive outcomes were exploratory type studies with no confirmatory follow-up. So the Obama administration just two years ago is admitting there's no conclusive evidence, there's conflicting study results, and the ones that claim the positive outcomes are the most poorly designed studies, exploratory with no confirmation in follow-ups. That was the proposed memo which came out in June. Two months later, they have their final memo, which comes out in August. Uh, this slide just repeats everything I just said, so I won't read it in the interest of time. Then they go on to point out some of the mistakes, non-longitudinal, they're exploratory, they don't have controls. And then this sentence, after careful assessment, we identified six studies that could provide useful information. Of these, the four best designed and conducted studies that assessed quality of life before and after surgery did not demonstrate clinically significant changes or differences in test results after GRS, gender reassignment surgery. So think about what this is saying just two years ago from the Obama administration. There is a patient population that is suffering so much, they are contemplating and going through radical surgeries 
to radically transform their bodies. And the four best studies on this show no clinically significant changes in their test results after that surgery. So all of the problems that brought them to the hospital in the first place remain. They're not receiving the healing and the wholeness that they desire. And then in the next slide, uh, the same decision memo from August con continues. It's now referring to that Swedish study that Dr. McHugh uh, quoted earlier. The study identified increased mortality, in, and this is one of the best, this is one of the four. This is one of the actual most rigorous studies. The study identified increased mortality in psychiatric hospitalization compared to matched controls. The mortality was primarily due to completed suicides, 19.1 greater than in control Swedes. And then the next sentence, we note mortality from this patient population did not become apparent until after 10 years. So what they're getting at here is that frequently if you've been experiencing gender dysphoria and you think that living as the opposite sex is the solution to your troubles, at first it might provide some relief. You're, you're fulfilling a desire that you've had. You're, you're living something that you've been hoping for. And then 10 years later, um, after that, um, uh, the newness of this identity has worn off and after those underlying forms of dysphoria uh, remain, that's when the study revealed the 19-fold greater increase of death by suicide. This is what McHugh was getting at when he said it proves not easy nor wise to live in counterfeit sexual garb. Most of the media studies will report one or two years after reassignment. Right? They say it's a glowing success. Look at how happy uh, Jazz Jennings is. Look at how happy um, uh, uh, Caitlyn Jenner is. They won't necessarily report 10, 15, 20 years down the road. This, of course, is all with adults. Uh, Center for um, Medicare and Medicaid Studies is looking at adults. What can we say about children? Let me uh, uh, briefly say three things about this. Uh, first is that it's entirely experimental. There's not a single long-term study on the long-term consequences of blocking puberty in a human being. Uh, we have no idea simply what the physical consequences are of not going through uh, biological puberty. Um, think not just changes that take place with our sexual development, but changes that take place to our bones, our bone length, our height, our bone density, our weight, our musculature, organ development. They simply don't know what they're doing by blocking puberty in a child. Um, second, they claim that it's fully reversible. Uh, this is an Orwellian form of language abuse. Uh, because the claim here is that we think that if we block puberty for, let's say, six years, and then we take the child off puberty-blocking drugs, normal puberty will recommence. But that doesn't reverse six years of blocking puberty. We also have no idea what going through a developmental process at age 18 that you were supposed to go through at age 11, 12, we have no idea what that delayed impact has on a human body. And yet they're telling parents it's fully reversible, so don't worry. You can block puberty for now to increase your options. And then lastly, there's a concern that it's self-fulfilling. Uh, remember that at the beginning of the lecture, I said that the best studies show that 80 to 95% of young people with a gender identity conflict naturally will grow out of it. They'll reconcile their identity with their uh, body. The Dutch clinic um, that pioneered puberty blocking as a treatment for gender dysphoria, 100% of the children in their study persisted in their transgender identity, which has led some American physicians um, to, to question whether or not encouraging a child to transition and to live as the opposite sex and then blocking their puberty and then giving them the opposite sex's sex hormones, if this isn't a self-fulfilling treatment protocol, that you're actually locking in the transgender identity, that it may very well be the boy who doesn't feel comfortable as a boy, that when he goes through puberty, when he gets the rush of testosterone, when his body develops into a man, that that'll be the very thing that helps get him out of his gender dysphoria. And so you're actually blocking the developmental pathway that would help uh, uh, coincide, help reconnect the identity with the body. Um, and you might very well be reinforcing, especially with neuroplasticity, um, the transgender identity. So I said I wanted to close with something practical. Let me describe 
uh, what Dr. McHugh still recommends. He's, he still sees patients one day a week. He's in his 80s now, but he's still practicing medicine and trying to live out the Hippocratic Oath. What he recommends, and other doctors like him, Dr. Michelle Cortella, the uh, president of the American Pediatric, uh, American College of Pediatricians, um, what she recommends, and then also I want to provide you with a closing um, story. So let me, the basic framework for the good response um, is talking to a child to find out what the underlying cause of the dysphoria is. Asking a child, what is it about being a boy that you find uncomfortable, that you find discomforting? What is it about being a girl that you think will provide a solution to this problem? What's attractive about it? What's appealing? What is it that, that provides you a sense of wholeness and completeness if you were to be living as a girl? And trying to pinpoint the underlying cause of either the anxiety about being a boy or the attractiveness about being a girl. Um, Dr. McHugh uh, compares this to other forms of dysphoria, to other types of uh, body um, um, uh, identity problems, uh, to something like anorexia. And no physician in his or her right mind would prescribe liposuction to an anorexic high school student because the problem's not with her body. Uh, what they would do is talk to the high school student. What is it? that makes you think that you're overweight? What is it that makes you think that you're unattractive? What is it um, that has you have a control uh, issue with respect to your food? Right? They would try to discover what is causing this uh, sense of either a body image problem or an eating disorder. McHugh says do the same thing uh, with gender dysphoria. Find out what the underlying cause is and then direct the therapy at that problem. Um, so two examples from a, a Toronto uh, clinic. Uh, one involves a young boy uh, was identifying as a girl. Parents take him to see a therapist. The therapist just starts asking why questions. What is it about being a boy that you find uncomfortable? What is it about being a girl that you find attractive? And the child revealed that he was being bullied. Uh, the other boys in class were picking on him. They were calling him a sissy and a wuss. Uh, he wasn't the most uh, rambunctious boy. He wasn't the most kind of uh, um, uh, physical, uh, physically imposing boy. He was smaller. He was quieter. He was more sensitive. And so the boys in his class were picking on him. He had formed closer friendships with the girls in his class. And as a coping mechanism for the bullying, he was identifying as a girl. So the therapist suggested three things. They said, first, get your son out of this environment. This actually is an environment of toxic masculinity. Um, the bullying is the underlying cause of his gender dysphoria. Get him out of there. Um, second, keep bringing him back to me so that we can talk each week about what it really means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. Um, contrary to that slide from Dr. Scott Leibowitz, your young son is not cognitively capable enough to know what it means to be a girl trapped in a boy's body. Uh, your son is going off of stereotypes. And he doesn't fit the narrow stereotype that he understands of what it means to be a boy. And so he's convinced himself that he's a girl. So we have to keep talking about these things so that he can develop a more mature and nuanced and robust understanding of authentic masculinity and femininity. Uh, he needs to know that not all boys have to be jerks. And then lastly, because he's uh, not cognitively capable enough, it's not enough just to talk to him about these things. He needs to experience it. Um, so the advice to the parents was, find your son a new peer group of boys just like him. Find your son a play group where he will see that boys can have all the same interests and dispositions and character traits that he has so that he can experience firsthand that he's a real boy. And so a year after this, this young uh, boy was identifying as a boy again, he was spared a lifetime of estrogen. He was spared a lifetime of living as if he was a girl. In a different example, uh, again, it's a boy identifying as a girl, but in the course of talk therapy, uh, he revealed to the therapist, uh, mommies like little girls more than they like little boys. And so that caught the attention of the therapist. And so the therapist started talking to the mother. You know, your son said something today during our session. He said that mommies like little girls more than little boys. Why would he say that? And what was revealed in that session of therapy was that the mother had been the victim of sexual assault several years earlier, and she never received the healing that she needed. She never got any assistance in overcoming that sexual assault. And she was inadvertently unable to be as physically affectionate with her son as she was with her daughter. 
And her son was picking up on this. Children are actually much more perceptive than we give them credit for. And her son was realizing, my mom is more affectionate with my sister than she is with me if I identify as a girl. Now, obviously, he's not thinking of this in like a syllogistic format uh, in the way that someone like Aquinas would. But implicitly, <laughs> this is the reality that he's grasping. Um, so here, um, the therapist directed the intervention with the mother by helping the mother receive the healing that she needs so that she can be whole again, her son will then be able to be whole again as a boy. And so a year after that therapeutic intervention, that boy was identifying as a boy again. He was spared a lifetime of cross-sex hormones. Why does all this matter? Um, let me close with the horror story. Um, not so much horror in the um, Halloween sense, but what could go wrong? Um, what first promoted me, uh, prompted me to write this book, because I had been writing on these issues as a policy matter. We were getting, I work at a, a policy think tank, Heritage Foundation does public policy. We were getting questions, well, what about bathrooms, locker rooms, what about sports teams, what about healthcare mandates, all the legal issues. Um, and we were responding to those. I, I wrote a long uh, paper with Melody Wood about those sorts of questions. And the more and more I dug into this, the more and more I saw that there were human lives at stake, um, not just legal battles and public policy battles. So the very last chapter of the book is the public policy and legal chapter. And everything prior to that are about the human costs of getting human nature wrong. Um, because we forget that there are actual human lives um, that are being harmed uh, by transgender ideology, that are being caught up in this transgender moment and are being uh, um, irreparably. I mean, in some senses, there is no going back uh, in a fullness of of the sense. Once you have removed certain body parts, they don't uh, grow back. And it was after I met uh, an individual who had transitioned um, in his 50s, uh, lived for eight years as a woman, and then detransitioned. And after I saw several uh, YouTube videos and personal testimonies of other individuals who had transitioned and then detransitioned, um, that I said to myself, this is the uh, type of project that I have to uh, work on. I'd already written a book about gay marriage. I'd written a book about religious liberty. I have nothing left to lose. All of the people, <laughs> all of the people who hate me will continue to hate me. It's, um, it's actually very liberating. Freedom, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, as the great philosopher Janis Joplin once said. And it's true, actually. I said to myself, I have the freedom uh, where I work. No one's going to fire me uh, for writing this book if I do good research. Um, I'm not going to lose any friends that I haven't already lost. And hopefully I could help people who are in a, a difficult situation. Um, because the stories of the people, especially uh, people who transitioned as teenagers, uh, they're heartbreaking. Um, they thought the problem was with their bodies. Uh, they were told by the experts in their communities that the problem was with their body and that the solution lied in cross-sex hormones or surgery. And then five or 10 years later, uh, they realize they've made a mistake. And when they go back, they realize uh, that they'll never fully be able to go back, that there are certain changes uh, that are permanent. And so I wanted to do whatever I could to help prevent those sorts of outcomes from happening to other people. Uh, and, I, and I hope that this has equipped you um, in the conversations you'll have in the work uh, that you might do after you graduate. And so let me just close with one uh, quote. This is from someone who uh, transitioned and then detransitioned. She says, I wanted to make a video previously so that folks can see that I'm a real live person, but I didn't out of fear of showing my face. But it's important when we talk about these issues to really understand that women like us aren't just statistics, not just some dry data some gatekeeping doctor might throw at you. We're real people. This is a real outcome of transition. I'm a real live 22-year-old woman with a scarred chest and a broken voice and five o'clock shadow because I couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. That's my reality. And what Carrie is describing there is that at age 17, she started to transition. Uh, she then went on testosterone. She had a double mastectomy and then she detransitioned. The scarred chest is the result of the mastectomy. The broken voice is the result of testosterone lengthening and thickening her vocal cords so that her voice changed. The five o'clock shadow is a result of her facial hair growing in. Um, all because, as she says, she couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. Uh, 
frequently what's described in the testimonies is that people who were experiencing gender dysphoria who transitioned, they were in a culture that had very rigid expectations for what real boys or real girls were supposed to be. Uh, they frequently blamed people like us, uh, conservative Christians, for being overly rigid in our gender role expectations. Um, and so that should be a caution to us that on the one hand, we want to avoid the mistake of androgyny, right? Saying that there are no differences between men and women. But on the other hand, we want to avoid the mistake of overly rigid sex stereotypes. Aristotle teaches us that, that, that virtue is the mean between two extremes. These are the two extremes that our culture oscillates between, right? We're either androgynous, there are no differences between men and women. We have a very androgynous form of feminism today, or we uh, revert to these very rigid sex stereotypes which men, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? We're totally different. Uh, what we need to develop as a culture is a healthy understanding of the differences and the differences that make a difference between men and women, while also embracing a capacious enough understanding of sex and gender uh, that we don't exacerbate gender dysphoria, uh, that we don't have people feel more alienated from their own bodies uh, because of our unrealistic expectations.